Let me just pray for us before we uh, open God's word together, and then uh, we'll get into the the message for today. Father in heaven, I I thank you that uh, this is possible, and that um, it's possible uh, on a very basic level because of technology. Uh, but beyond that, it's possible because the reality of the Church of Jesus Christ is one that uh, extends across borders, extends across the oceans, across continents. Um, the scripture teaches us that we are one in Christ. Um, there is one body, and Christ is the head, and we are all members of him. And so even uh, because the distance separates us and even uh, we cannot meet in the same place, we know that this is true, and we thank you for that. We thank you because we have your word, uh, which is a light to our path, and we also have your Holy Spirit, which um, indwells us. So again, thank you for these, these realities, these truths that uh, make it possible to be in communion uh, one with another. May we just, uh, even as we start, just rejoice in that truth. Um, and it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So uh, maybe some of you haven't seen me before. Uh, so I'm actually uh, a missionary in, in France. Uh, we live in Paris. I'll show some pictures along the way. Um, but as I have often said when I come to preach, I like it's best to start with the word, isn't it? And today I'd like us to go back to an Old Testament passage, which you probably know, uh, which speaks uh, to the people of Israel while they were in exile. So uh, some are starting to think, or you already saw the, the title. We're going to look in Jeremiah 29, and uh, I, the title that I give to this message for those who are taking notes, and I'll try to be organized and give you some some outline type stuff, but I don't promise to be that good at that because it's not my strong point, but we'll try. So the title, though, is What Does God Say About the Well-Being of the City? And so we're in Jeremiah chapter 29, um, and I can uh, share... Uh, this with you. That way, uh, for those who would want to look, uh, um, there's the text of uh, today's message, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 9, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Um, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Sharpan, Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens, 
eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For the students of the Bible, for those who have read this, you'll uh, recognize this passage. Uh, We are, uh, historically, we know where we are in the sense that the dates are really clear from archaeology. We know that it was in uh, 605 before uh, Christ's birth that the first exiles were sent out of Jerusalem. It was Nebuchadnezzar who came. Uh, You can see that in Jeremiah chapter uh, 25, verse 7. Uh, So that was the first wave. And then uh, we estimate, the, the, the Bible teachers and scholars estimate that we're about at 595 B.C., before Christ, when this letter was sent. So we're roughly 10 years into the exile. And up to that point, it was, uh, Jeremiah had already given the prophecy of seven years in chapter 25. So it was a, it was a known quantity reality that there was going to be 70 years of exile. And once again, as Jeremiah says in the passage, there were prophets who were saying, no, we're going to go back. It's, it's going to work out. And Jeremiah sent this letter and said, no, hold on. Uh, it's going to still be uh, where they're at now. It would be 60 more years. 60 years is a long time, isn't it? I mean, it's not. It's there. I, I'm just right now in my uh, life as a missionary, I'm actually hitting my 30-year mark overseas, which starts to make me wonder about age. But 30 is is really not a whole lot because when I look at my father, who's still uh, with us, and we th- praise God for that, who will turn 89 this year. So he's about a little over 30 years older than me. So, uh, you know, you can still see that. So 60, 70 years is a long time. One of the things I think when we think about the people of Israel at that time being sent into exile, we can think about how they reacted to that. Uh, and this, again, is why Jeremiah is sending this passage, this, this letter. He's, he's writing to people who, in some ways, are longing to get back to Jerusalem. Uh, it has been a great uh, tragedy to be taken away, that the temple has been destroyed, that the the, the utensils of the temple have been taken out and all of this, and they're longing to go back. And they want to go back because Jerusalem is the place where God had his dwelling, where they would, where there was the temple, and, and they're not there. They are in a foreign land among a foreign people. And certainly they are now realizing that they, uh, in our language today, they've messed up. You know, the, the, the prophets had warned time and time again, uh, called them back to obedience, to, to faith in God. And God had said again and again, if you don't change, if you don't repent, this is going to happen. Um, 
just a, a practical thing. We, we all know this because we've lived it. When we get caught sinning, when we get caught doing something wrong, uh, our, our first reaction maybe sometimes is, let me make that up to you. Uh, we want to uh, somehow reduce the tension, reduce the uncomfortableness of the fact that we've done something wrong. Uh, it's embarrassing. It's, uh, it's painful. Uh, it has consequences. And so we want to find some way to, to change the situation and get back to what we think is normal. Um, before I go into how I see this passage working for Israel and for us today, uh, obviously, when we think of their situation, our situation has nothing like theirs, obviously. Um, this is before the time of Christ, before Christ has come, before the what we celebrate during the Lord's Supper, this final once-for-all sacrifice that, that changes everything. Uh, and the people of Israel are looking for that day. Uh, we're on the other side. And so we're not being, we're not in exile today in the sense of we've been punished and we have been sent away from God's presence because the great change is, is God's in us now. His presence is with us, which is just amazing. Uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so all of a sudden, the thing has changed. But we are similar to the people of Israel in that we are not at our home. There is a country a land that we are waiting for, a time that we are waiting for, a day that will come when everything will be made right. And just as the people of Israel were in Babylon longing to get back to Jerusalem to where things were right, uh, maybe ours, we're not looking back to something, we're looking forward to a day. And so we too could maybe have the same kind of feelings of wanting to get there and somehow not being completely here where we are. And that's, in some ways, I think, uh, what God was talking to the people of Israel at their time, and I think also what God wants to say to us today. When we look at the text, and when we think about it, we notice uh, a few things. Uh, First, we need to see and understand what is the will of God. Um, and when we look at chapter, uh, verse, chapter 29, verse 4, the first thing that God says to the people in exile, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Yes, it was Nebuchadnezzar who was the agent, who was the one who took them, and God even says that he was his instrument for doing this, but God is clear. He was the one who sent them into exile. It was his will that they go into exile. And this is always the case. God is always accomplishing his will. The Lord's, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples says that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our constant prayer. Jesus clearly, throughout his ministry, showed a life of someone who was in constant harmony with the will of the Father. Christ says, I never do anything of my own, my own initiative. I only do what the Father has told me to do. And for us as followers of Christ, 
this is our heartbeat. We want to do the Father's will. And uh, Paul in the Colossians, when he writes them, he says, God is going to reveal his will to us in all uh, wisdom and spiritual understanding so that we will know how to walk in a manner that is worthy of what we've received. So, so God wants us to know his will. And so understanding his will, knowing his will, and what is his will? Well, here for the people of Israel, it was to look for, to work for, uh, as the English Standard Version says, for the well be the welfare of the city. Working for the welfare of the city. Uh, again, for if we go into other Bible translations, we'll realize quickly that this idea of welfare uh, is the what is used to translate um, the Hebrew word shalom, which we all probably know. Uh, it means peace. It means well-being. It means everything as it should be. It means prosperity. And so uh, just think about how the people that God, that Jeremiah is writing to would receive this. Jeremiah says, you've been taken into exile. You're, you, this is the punishment that God had promised, and now you are living there. And now, not only do you have to accept the fact that God has taken you there, but you have to work for the well-being of your oppressors. You have to work for the well-being of those who have put you into captivity. Because doing that will also be beneficial for you. When we think of this idea of well-being, of what is the most, the greatest thing that someone can have, uh, the scriptures are, are clear, uh, is to know God is the greatest thing that we can have. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of his love for us, the knowledge of what he has done for us. And throughout scriptures, it's been clear, and I'm not sharing anything new with you. God has always been the initiator in this movement. He is the one who has come towards us constantly to make himself known. And we can see that through all of scripture. And so what God's greatest desire, what is his will? Well, his greatest desire is will that everybody, every man, woman, and child would have multiple occasions to both hear, to know, to hear, see, and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. God wants everyone to come to salvation. That is his desire. That is God's peace for our world, to know him. And so when we think of what is the thing that we need to bring to this world, what is the thing that we are here for as God's people today, is to work towards helping every man, woman, and child have multiple occasions to hear about Jesus Christ. And this is both an individual as well as a collective responsibility. We're here for that. We're here for the well-being of this world. And the well-being of this world comes first and foremost through knowing God. And we know God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but the salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that me see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when we look at, when we think about what God was saying to the people of Israel at that time, he says, work for the good of the city, work for the well-being, and we're called for the same thing. Now the question now is, is how were they to do this? And this is where it gets interesting. Because God says, you do this, you seek the well-being of the city, the peace of the city, by understanding what it means to belong, to be present in a very real and material way, and a long-lasting way. Look at what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage. Basically says, live completely there. Live where you are. Um, Again, think about their situation. They are hundreds of miles kilometers from Jerusalem. They are in under the orders and under the control of a foreign power, a godless power. They long to go back to the promised land, the land that God had promised to them. And again, when you think of the people of Israel, just the whole history, uh, the patriarchs, 400 years in Egypt, God's powerful deliverance of the people, and and then the conquest of the land, and the reign, Juska, the, the summum of David and Solomon, and now they are away from that. And God says, stop wanting to go back. Be where you are. I don't think we have to uh, use too much imagination to think about this in our context today. And I'll say this. I don't think we have a hard time living where we are. It'd be pretty silly not to live where you are, right? That's that's just a, a bit of nonsense. But living where you are, that's in a way that's integrated with the will of God. That's another thing. Let me say it another way. Uh, you all, uh, if I look carefully, you all have houses. Uh, looks like there's a lot of husbands and wives. Looks like there's children. Uh, there's probably grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Uh, you, there's probably some amazing, amazing professions represented among you, people who have done incredible things. as human beings, as people who need to live in 
live in before God, we live. But how well and what degree, how are we living out this double reality of both living in this world, but also working towards what God wants, and that is that everybody hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understanding both our individual and our corporate responsibility in that. That sense of belonging. Now, for those who are, I think my last message I preached with you, I was on this sense of where do you live? So I'm back in the same territory again, I know. So sorry, it's it's a bit where I'm at here in Paris too. It's what's on my mind. And so uh, to help you understand how we're trying to figure this out in Paris, let me give you a couple illustrations of what this means. Because I think you are very serious, and I believe you're very serious about being God's people in the place where he has placed you. I love it when, I think it's Fiona, when she puts, she stops her camera, all of a sudden the chapel pops up on the screen. And I love seeing that because it's a, it's a you have bought land, you have put down roots into, uh, I, don't even, I don't even remember what the neighborhood where that church is in, but sorry. It's Fanwood. Fanwood. Your property owners there, as a people, as God's people, as an assembly of God's people, you're there. That's your spot. That's really cool. Uh, It's like us here on our spot. Uh, So here, let me give you some illustrations real quick. One of the things that we've realized living in Paris, so Paris, like New York City, people are coming and going all the time, right? You guys are on the far suburbs, uh, but bedroom community, undoubtedly lots of commuters, you know, we, you know, the, you know, the drill, you know how that works. So there's people always coming to the city. There's all people always living, this, living, leaving the city. There are young believers coming to the city all the time. And one of the challenges that we see is, uh, especially in France, where the evangelical population is just 1% of the total population. So it's very small. We're very dispersed. And so a young person comes to the city and often they spend a year lost trying to figure out how, where do they go? How do they settle? Who do they see? What do they do? How does it work? How does the city work? Um, and we live right in the city. I mean, we're like the equivalent, like living in Manhattan or, you know, around Central Park. I mean, it's not even Brooklyn or the Bronx. We're, we're on the island, you know, we're maybe Harlem, not quite Harlem, the equivalent of Harlem. It's funny, the north of the city of New York is similar to the fact that the north of Paris has a different cosmopolitan look in the south. We'll go into things. So back to these young people coming to the city, either for studies or for work. Uh, this past year, I've started talking with a group of uh, young men who have already been living and working in the city for a number of years. And I said, hey, guys, can we start working together to put together a little uh, kind of initiation project where, where, or presentation project where we would, as people come into the city, we would help them think through what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in the city, what it means to both live in a place, to put down roots, and even understanding how Young people, that's hard to understand because they're mobile by nature. We know that. But still giving them some ideas that, okay, the, the city works in what? The city works in networks and in local neighborhoods. 
Everything works that way, right? Networks, local neighborhoods. How does that function? How are you going to fit in? How are you going to walk as a disciple in the city? Helping them make choices before they get to the city. Helping them realize once they get there to find a network. Because we want to help them understand what it means to seek the well-being of the city. Because that's how God blesses the city. It's by his people doing that very thing. So that's one thing. We're working on that. And please pray for that. We're The guys that I'm working with, we're going to accelerate our work together. And hopefully in uh, September, we will start our initial year. It won't be a, a massive training. It'll be like maybe five or six modules spread out over the year uh, to kind of give young people, young workers, an idea of, okay, how does this work and how can we best serve God in the city? But it's not only that. It's not only people coming. You're already there. And now I'm addressing you, your brothers and sisters. You're already where you live. You're already in these places. And just like us, we ask the question, what does it mean to live on this territory here? Um, one of the, in working on this, I, I came across a, a writing that talked about thinking through our presence in a neighborhood, our presence as God's people, God's church in a specific place. And let me give you three ideas of what it means to, again, to really belong to a place. And the author, he, he gives three ideas. First, he says, where you live right now, and, and this is really neat because we're basically all looking into each other's homes right now. But where you live right now is the place where you meet God. I mean, we've done that this morning in terms of a collective way, but also individually. Your home is this place where you are meeting God on a daily basis. It's holy ground. And that's amazing. It's, it's a place where you are going to go and read God's word. You're going to pray. And God is there with you by his indwelling spirit. And then, well, if you bring people in, uh, it's just amazing to think about that. That where the people of Israel, they were really stuck on the idea, well, the only place we can meet God is back in Jerusalem. We need to get back there. And God, well, he says, basically, no, you, he, it's a little taste of what we live now. No, we meet God right where we are. And that's, again, Jesus, that was his great teaching to the woman at the well. No, it's, it's where you are. It's not only the place where we individually, uh, again, this is, this is not a new teaching for you all. It's also where the family together meets God. Um, it's where the family meets God in our homes. And what a blessing it is as parents to, with young children to, to teach them and to help them see how Yes, we meet God here, and we pray to God here, and we read his Bible together here, and we sing to God here. And for you who are a little older and maybe have grandchildren now, what a blessing it is to welcome your grandchildren into your home, and not only to, to let them go crazy and live a different way, because that's what happens, I know, um, but also you as grandparents can help your grandchildren understand that in our homes, this is where we meet God. 
And then finally, when we think about our homes as a place where the church is present, where God is present in, in our neighborhoods, in our localities, our homes are also where we welcome others into our home, where hospitality is exercised and people can come in to meet God because God is there. And so as, as God's people, I just want to encourage us, and this is something that, you know, during our pandemic times, it's been crazy because we haven't been able to welcome people as much as we want. But it's still the reality that we need to long for and go towards. So understanding that where we live is these, this reality that as we understand our homes as these little bastions, these little outposts of God's presence. And then what happens is, and this is the great thing, a little harder in less dense areas, but here in, in Paris, what's great is, is in our street now, just out back behind me there, in our street, we have, we now know a number of people just from our neighborhood, just within a few, you know, a few steps that way or a few steps that way, believers, they come to our church. And so we meet each other in the street. And so the reality kind of spills out onto the street. Our prayer in this, when we think of it collectively, so now that was individually in our homes, but collectively, our prayer in Paris, and this is something you can pray with us for, please pray for us, this is our prayer is that we would see more disciples of Jesus Christ who come to church on foot really simple idea. More disciples who come to church on foot. The implications being that we're seeing more people coming to faith where people are, where they live, and also new assemblies growing where we are in the neighborhoods. If you remember, I just mentioned a while back, quickly in passing, this idea that the city is organized between networks in localities, in places. Um, and life is organized that way. We have different networks that, that meet or don't meet. We have our families, which is one big network probably. And then our workspace is another network. And then our activities that we do that, uh, that bring us joy and pleasure, whether it's hiking or bridge or I don't know, you can name a hundred things. But all these different activities are, are represent networks. And then we have one other one that's where we live. And, and how do we interact between all those networks and where we live? And our modern world basically wants us to reduce our, where we live down to just where we live. And anything beyond that doesn't is in the network space. Our prayer is, and I think it's your prayer too, is that we would have meaningful interactions as God's people, as local assemblies in the neighborhoods where God has planted us. So God, when he's saying to the people of Israel, what does it mean to seek the well-being of the city? He says, first, you have to understand my will. I put you there. So again, wherever you are, God has placed you there. That's the way it is right today. That's it. Uh, maybe you like it, maybe you don't like it. This is where you are. And so God wants us to make the best of that, understand what it means to be his people there. And then it means to settle in. 
And then the last thing, which uh, I was thankful to hear about this week of prayer that was announced. The last thing is, is God says, sorry, I'm not seeing my face. Pray to the Lord, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf or intercede the Lord before the Lord on his behalf. For it's for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so the key of this passage is prayer. The key is, is that we pray all the time in every way that we can for where we are. And prayer is not the last thing that we do. Um, I, I really have to, I, I'm sure many people have made this confession, but I too am going to make this confession. I have not practiced prayer well in my Christian life. I mean, I pray. I mean, we all pray. We do pray. But it's it's not been that that thing that I've done in a really concentrated way. But God has been working on me over the last couple of months. And in fact, uh, recently, even in a more new way, um, we just were reading with a group of uh, leaders from uh, five assemblies in Paris. We're doing a Zoom once a month training event. It's really cool. It's it's something we hadn't planned and. God allowed it to happen. And, um, and so we are praying together and, um, and working together. And we're reading Alex's, Alex Strauch's uh, Leading with Love. And it's a wonderful book. And I hope you've, you've read that, whether as elders or as a church. It's just, just great, great encouragement, um, starting with 1 Corinthians 13. But he talks about the importance of prayer. And prayer is not the last thing that we do. It's not, oh, I can't do anything for you. I'm going to pray. Now, prayer is the first thing we do, and God is calling us to pray for the city. So let's pray. Let's pray for more occasions to speak about Christ. Remember the whole thing about making sure every person can hear about him? Pray for more occasions to, to speak, more occasions to act so that people can see the love of Christ, see the gospel in action, and that people would respond. And then to pray for our neighborhoods. Um, for where we live, for the, our street. Um, and as we do this, we are seeking the well-being. We're seeking the peace. We're seeking the shalom of the city. Silly and I are thankful for where God has placed us. It's been five years now that we've been here in uh, this little apartment. And, uh, and we're thankful for what God has done. And we're just learning how to understand what it means to live where we are, really. And, uh, and we're thankful that we can share that with you. And we do pray for you as you are seeking to be God's people where he has placed you in this time, in this place, setting down roots, seeking the well-being, the peace of those around you, praying. And may God bless you all as you do that. And let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the example of... Uh, these words from Jeremiah, where he reminded the people to uh, seek the well-being, seek the peace of the city where they were exiled. And, and we know we're not in exile in the sense of uh, in the same way they are, but we are in a, a time of waiting, waiting for the day when Christ will be revealed, when he will come again and he will take us to be with him. And we long for that day. 
And as we wait for that day, may we be active in our service. May we be active in living fully among the people where you have placed us and growing in our ability to share our faith, to speak about Christ. Again, thank you for our dear brothers and sisters uh, uh, at Terrell Road uh, Bible Chapel. And we just pray for your blessing. Again, and it's in Christ's name. Amen.